the cycling podcast powered by super sapiens energy management for committed athletes and coaches Hello, joining you from Berlin, where the city is just about stirring from its New Year hangover and healing from its annual self-inflicted firework Armageddon on that particular date. And police and the fire brigade were called out 3,940 times on Saturday night. Uh, my name's Daniel Freeber. I'm the host of this episode of the Cycling Podcast, which will hopefully be a banger without requiring the intervention of the emergency services. I suggested that some post-festive normality has returned to Berlin and will slowly return to the cycling podcast in the next few weeks as the season cranks up. Um, For now, we're going to ease ourselves into the season and into preview mode. And we'll do that today by taking an in-depth look at what is our early tip for the team of the year in 2023. That's to say Bora Hansgrohe. We crowned Jumbo Visma for 2022, of course, just a couple of weeks ago. We had an interview, a long interview, in fact, with their team boss, Richard Plugger. Well, today, after the formalities of the news roundup and a bit of chit-chat with the guest I'll introduce in a minute, we'll have an in-depth interview with one of the key men at Bora. That is their head sports director, Rolf Aldag. But first, to our first guest, I believe he's joining me from Gijón in Asturias, where, as in the rest of Spain tomorrow, that is January the 6th, they'll be celebrating the Day of the Three Kings, or Les Reyes Magos, best known for his work on bike races with Eurosport. On almost any day of the season, this king of commentary comes bearing his gold, his frankness, and his mirth. He comes not from the Orient, but Blackburn in the northwest of England, over moor and mountain the West Pennine Moors, that is. Following yonder stars, i.e. the stars of the pro peloton, it's the voice of cycling. It's Roberto Hatch. Rob, how are Accrington you? Accrington wants a word with you, though, Daniel. <laughs> Accrington wants a word Accrington? with you. Um, were, you, were you born in Accrington, not Blackburn? Born in Accrington, yes. But Blackburn. You support fine. Blackburn. We'll, uh, uh, we'll let that one slip. Robert, tell us about the Three Kings. Why is the Three Kings such a big deal in Spain? If it, is it a bigger deal than Christmas itself? It's a really difficult one. This has caused arguments in families. It's actually caused a big argument in the last week in my partner's family, actually, as uh, my partner's <laughs> sister would rather be more traditional than celebrate the Three Kings. Was the myrrh and frankincense flying across the living room? I don't know. Not quite yet, but we'll, there's time for it yet because we've got the procession later on today. We're speaking on, on Thursday and then we've got presents opening tomorrow, big lunch and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I'm getting out early of the festivities because tis the season, Daniel, to be doing your homework for the new road season. So I've got a bit of cyclocross commentary this week. So I'm out of here tomorrow. I'm back home to Mallorca um, and then uh, doing my homework for the new season. Well, that new season will kick off in earnest in just a couple of weeks. But how was Christmas, Rob? Tell us about Christmas and New Year. Was it a good one for you? Any New Year's resolutions? It was very, very... Um, oh, same ones as every year that you never sort of really managed to to, to fulfil. I was reading, um, I was thinking about you earlier today. I was reading about the Three Kings and the Three Kings procession in Madrid. And there was a figure given. I gave the figure earlier of the number of times the fire brigade was called out in Berlin on New Year's Eve. I, I read that it was a similar figure for the kilos of sweets, of boiled sweets and yes. various other sweets that were delivered to Madrid for the Three Kings procession. And I worried about you because you used to be, used to be partial to a, a sweet or two um, when we lived together. So any sweet-related New Year's resolutions? 
lots of... Uh, do you know what? That's the one thing I don't think I could give up. Maybe eat less of it. Um, you know, just everything in moderation, isn't it, I suppose? But there's been lots of sweets. There's been lots of sweets and, you know, lots of sort of big dinners over here, um, things like that. I, I was actually at home for Christmas. I came here just after Christmas. Uh, I was here for New Year. We've done a house move with uh, my partner and her little one. I've helped them move the house. We've been, again, family dinners, eating cakes, lots of cakes, different kinds of cakes. And there's a typical, you're talking about the Three three Kings cake, the Three Kings, rather. There is a Three Kings cake, Roscon de Reyes. Uh, and you find little you know, uh, things inside it. You can find little gifts inside it. So you've got to be careful when you're eating it, but it's like a, a big round what, sort like of thing. Like a panettone sort of stuffed with Kinder Egg toys. Is that kind of thing? Am I imagining this right? Yeah, except it's not a panettone, but there you go. Um, I did have some panettone, you know, you know, obviously with our Italian leanings, any excuse, I, I bought a couple of those. I had one at home and one here. So yeah, New Year's resolutions definitely start, Daniel, with uh, eating less sweets and riding my bike a bit more. Well, Rob, lest anyone think we've got nothing to talk about this week, we need to crack on. Um, nothing cycling related to talk about. And let's jump into the proverbial ice plunge and crack straight on with the cyclocross in this week's news roundup. As ever, a lot to catch up on as the three tenors, the cyclocross BGs, um, as I keep calling them. They're, well, they're mid-winter tour at the moment in plainer English, Matthew van der Poel. Wout van Aert and Tom Pidcock are competing a lot, generally against each other. Um, on New Year's Day, for once, they did not all take the stage. Only Pidcock raced in Baal, and that allowed Ellie Isabit to strike a blow for the common folk of the normal, in inverted commas, cyclocross season beating Pidcock, taking the victory, ahead of Michael Van Hoornhout. Is that right, Rob? Van Hoornhout. Van Hoornhout. Yep. Uh, three days later, Van der Poel and Van Aert were back, and Van Aert was also racing on home turf, or mud, at Herentals. He is, of course, known as the second emperor of Herentals, Rick Van Looy being the first. Equally significant, Van Aert was racing with new components, SRAM, having replaced Shimano as Jumbo Visma's official supplier on January the 1st. Mathieu van der Poel, though, also had a new weapon. I believe he was racing on a new Canyon bike that day. And it was van der Poel who got the better of his old foe, winning by 21 seconds. It was actually not van Aert's shifters that let him down, or indeed his legs that day, but his tyres he punctured on the last lap. A reminder that van der Poel and van Aert are both building towards the World Championships in Hoogerheide, is it, Rob, in the Netherlands? Hoogerheide, yeah. Hoogerheide. On February the 5th, Pidcock, who is the current world champion, will not defend his title in the Netherlands. On the women's side, Femke van Empel was back in action in Baal after a few weeks out, having crashed at Val di Sole in the World Cup before Christmas. It was also an emphatic return to action as she won by two whole minutes over Lucinda Brandt. In Herentals, there was no Van Empel and her season-long rival Puck Pieterse took advantage with Brandt again second. Now, Rob, you're quite an avid follower of cyclocross. You certainly commentate on it um, yep. relatively regularly. I mean, by all accounts, this is turning into a cracking season or the season within a season when we've got Pidcock, um, Van Der Poel and Van Aert going up against each other. Is there a, what's the sort of prevailing sense of who is winning that battle at the moment? The numbers speak in Wout van Aert's favour, don't they? I think he's been winning the sprints, he's been getting there, he's had a hang on, he's had to suffer. Um, had to feel a little the other day for Mathieu van der Poel because he actually won after van Aert had had a puncture. 
Um, and Fonderpool was very, very gracious in the interview afterwards, saying that, yeah, well, you know, I'd like Walt to be here. He had to obviously say all the right things. But it is not just a two-way battle, is it? Because Pidcock's won a couple of do's as well. And, and I think you were very right to refer to it as a season within a season, because that's exactly what it is. You've got completely different names at the top of the tree from, you know, in the early season period. You've got the first race at the end of September, and then it's round about, November, mid-November, that the beasts awake from their slumber, don't they? And um, we see the big three in action. And, and there's always that question mark. Oh, are they going to ride all the way to the world? Are they going to carry on? Are they not? You just mentioned that Pidcock isn't. Um, and obviously, when you're paid you know, big wages by a road team, that's going to have an influence, isn't it? Certainly, if you're going to be racing classics and things like that after that. And, and in the women's side as well, we've had a couple of young guns racing all year round and providing fantastic entertainment. And you mentioned Fen Empel there. That was on her first day, that win, on her first day in a brand new team colours. So a brilliant, brilliant start to life at Jumbo Fisma for her. Now from mud to gravel and the news that one of the talismanic events in what is a burgeoning new discipline, uh, Unbound in Kansas, will ban aero bars for its 2023 edition. We're not necessarily the most deciduous followers of the gravel scene, but I know this has been a hotly debated issue. Uh, our friend Ian Boswell is a former winner of Unbound. He also has an excellent podcast, Breakfast with Boz. And the president of the race organizers, Kimo Seema, told Boz on that podcast... The emphasis is on the journey person athlete. That's the spirit of gravel. Uh, the aeroban has been introduced in an effort to safeguard this sort of spirit of gravel. Now, Rob, this is a, uh, an issue that really intrigues me. Again, seen from afar because it's, and we're not necessarily au fait with everything going on in the gravel scene, but just this sort of battle for the soul of gravel. We talked about it, we referred to it last week, and I thought it would be one of the themes of 2022. I guess this underlines that. I mean, how do you impose structure on something which has grown out of, been born out of the desire to sort of break with structure and the desire to sort of find freedom in, in the world of professional cycling? Because that is really, when we talk about the soul of gravel, um, the spirit of gravel that's i suppose what we're, f we're referring to isn't it the, the the desire to break out of the shackles of more traditional disciplines mm. this is a really difficult conversation to have because I th it's really hard to have it without upsetting people who are from that Sounds, world is, 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 and is, is it as difficult of, of is, gravel. It, is it as difficult as the three kings versus christmas discussion that you had in your household <laughs> um Probably, yeah, because it, it, it's actually quite akin to that because it's about culture. It's about two different cultures. One professional sport, which is about winning. Let's be honest. You know, we like to be entertained, but it's about winning, isn't it? Um, whereas you've got a completely different culture, which is this, you talk about the, the soul, the spirit of gravel. I'd liken it to the likes of um skateboarding surfing things like that new sort of new generation sports i think we used to call them when we started up uh eurosport 2 back in the day um when i started at eurosport and and that was the destination for all those things um in those you know your skateboarding and skating and all that sort of thing it's not necessarily the winning that's important, but as they've become more professional as what's happening with gravel now the idea is that you win otherwise 
where does the money come from to carry on competing? Where does the television audience come from? Remember, they have to be entertained. Otherwise, without any telly, there isn't really any professional sport nowadays, is there? Um, so if you want to sell it, I'm afraid that it might be a hard conversation to really have with people who have come through gravel, you know, and, and I completely get it. I understand they might feel that their baby is being taken mm. away. And, and But if you want it to be bigger you have to sort of make that deal with the devil, don't you? And that it's part, it's part of the journey, I'm afraid. Yeah, I mean, we talk about the sort of battle for the, for the soul of a sport and maybe when we think about gravel, we think in binary terms of the gravel world and the road world and maybe the real sort of culture clash here is between amateur and elite. And, um, you know, maybe we get to a point where sort of anything goes in the amateur branch of the discipline and, and and that's great because you do preserve that that spirit but yes. if, if i'm watching elite sport i want to watch elite sport i want to watch the very best going for the win and th there was an anecdote because I, w I was lucky enough to commentate on the first gravel world championships actually um and we were we weren't there on site in italy so we couldn't get a full feel for for this new atmosphere but there was one thing happening towards the end of the race that i thought oh this doesn't look good there were people being lapped and getting in the way in the last kilometer of the elite race. And I had people writing to me saying, oh, hang on, but you shouldn't criticize that. That's the spirit of gravel. That's what it's all about. Mm. No, because when you've got, just imagine that this continues to grow and you've got silly figures and money banded about for gravel teams maybe in 20 years and things like that. You'd have things being taken to court. Yeah. If if somebody got in the way in the last 500 meters, and, and I understand why people don't like it, I'm not saying this is what I you know what I personally believe, but that's just how how elite sport and competition works. It has to be, you know, you can't have people interfering in the last kilometer. Just imagine that you know, Wembley, Arsenal, and Tottenham. Mm. I know you've got a big uh, a big First a big stake in one yeah. of those sides. Yeah, um, just imagine they're playing FA Cup final, Daniel at Wembley. And someone's, you know, having a kick about at half time doing a charity thing. Just imagine they're carrying their kick about in the penalty area in the 80th minute and somebody trips up on them and penalty's given or whatever. They get in the way and interfere in play. That's the equivalent of that, isn't it? First of 3,492 football references to come in the cycling podcast in 2023. <laughs> but please bear with us. And um, Rob, before we move on, another thing I would just say is that it strikes me that, you know, we talk about the spirit of gravel and bound up with the spirit of gravel is this is the image and is the aesthetics of gravel which is one of the things that i think is well it, it makes people self-identify and it has made people encourage people to sort of self-identify with gravel they find that very appealing there's a there's a very different aesthetic to gravel racing and i did see some pictures from previous editions of unbound um with riders using aero bars and i think that's one of the reasons why this causes problems for some people the idea of aero bars because it looks it, you know it, it sort of makes one think immediately of triathlon and it jars for other people it will have the opposite effect they will think of you know sort of round the world type long distance enduro riders who do use travel bars sorry travel bars um aero bars and you know that is another element at the heart of this issue of what is the soul of gravel people have a very distinct and well-defined idea of what it does look like what it should look like and and that is one reason why 
some people will take exception to changes that proposed or made. Um, Rob, you mentioned skateboarding. I should take this opportunity. I watched a cracking documentary the other day called All This Mayhem, a skateboarding documentary. Every now and again, we like to you know, drop in the odd, the odd recommendation for things that people might watch when they're not following professional cycling. This was about the Papas brothers, a pair, uh, a pair of sort of um, trailblazing Australian... Uh, skateboarders and how well their boom turned to bust um heartily recommended i think it's on amazon prime in the uk at the moment all this mayhem rob let's get on with the cycling um a couple of bits of rider news still a lot of guys left on the market contractless after the collapse of the b&b hotels project we talked last week about mark cavendish said that his signing with astana was imminent uh, that remains the case i've seen tweets and various things on social media about the fact that he wasn't in the team photo that Astana released this week well the team photo was taken before Christmas when um, negotiations that only really just started with Mike Cavendish I haven't heard of any delays or any reason why that deal shouldn't go through uh, another one of the bigger names who had placed his future to B&B uh, Franck Bonamour has signed with AG2 Citroën or AG2 Citroën uh, Bonamour of course was the super combatif at the 2021 Tour de France Another couple of things on riders. Sasha Modolo is retiring at the age of 35. He was the winner of two Giro stages in his pomp. Another rider with no ink deal for 2023, at least that we know about, Superman Lopez. Superman Lopez is strongly rumoured to be joining the Colombian Continental Division team, Team Medellin. Superman, who was sacked by Astana, of course, for his alleged involvement in a Spanish doping investigation a few weeks ago. He continues to state, protest his innocence. Last bit of news, and in many ways the most significant development of the week, ASO has awarded its two wildcards for the 2023 Tour de France, and there are no surprises Israel Premier Tech and Uno X will be on the start line in Bilbao. I should add that Uno X will also compete in the Tour de France Femme. Israel, of course, have been at the Tour before, but this will be a first for Uno X. And the first time a Norwegian team has ridden the Tour. They call themselves a Norwegian-Danish team, but Uno X is a Norwegian company. So it's an historic development for cycling in that part of the world, professional cycling in that part of the world. Rob... I said no surprise really. I mean, there was a school of thought that because the Tour de France was starting the Basque Country, Escaltel had a chance, but this wasn't the mad scramble, the sort of bitter scramble for those wild cards that we have seen in the past. No, I mean, what the thing that did surprise me that Unex didn't compete last year. I, I fully expected them to be getting the wild card for the Danish start, actually, uh, given their sort of long list of Danish riders. And I know you said that they're a Norwegian back team, registered team, but they have had a lot of Danish riders down the years and a lot of Danish influence. Um, there wasn't too much talk here in Spain either about the possibility, really, of Euskaltel getting invited. Um, I think that, yeah, they've got a decent enough squad to show themselves off in the welter, but it's not the Euskaltel of old, is it, with the superstars? It's much more of a development project nowadays. And I think the Tour de France and the Vuelta would have been a big ask for them with the current squad anyway. Rob, to hear a little bit more about Uno X and the sort of impact that this news has had in Norway in particular, let's go. Let's cross over to Norway. Let's cross over to Oslo and our good friend, now semi-regular contributor to the cycling podcast, Magnus Ora. I spoke to Magnus earlier today about the news that Uno X will be at the 2023 Tour de France. 
how big is this news for cycling in Norway? I guess it's not a surprise necessarily, yeah. but how big is it? It's actually pretty big. I would say it's been, uh, it was headline news in Norwegian media yesterday. And to be fair, you don't really get that many cycling headline news um, uh, in Norway anymore. Um, to be fair, the interest has kind of waned a bit in the last few years after, you know, who saw the retired Christoph peaked and then kind of slowly, well, you know, he's still a really good rider, but it's not the rider he once was. Mm. Edward Wozenhagen isn't the rider he once was. So I think it was really, it was really needed to kind of like reinvigorate the interest in Norwegian cycling. Uh, and as you mentioned, it wasn't a surprise in any way um, ever since, you know, news started to emerge of the whole BNB debacle. Uh, it's been sort of uh, a badly kept secret. Um, and Unix had this sort of secret meeting uh, with a, a ASO before Christmas where they brought along Tour Husobd to kind of like help them Interesting. <laughs> broker a deal <laughs> somehow. And they got the call on, I think it was New Year's Day that they were in. So um, not a surprise, but a big, big day for Norwegian cycling. Probably one of the yeah top four fine days in region cycling mm. history i'd say yeah. i yeah interesting you mentioned Husov because i mean i've been sort of waiting for norwegian cycling to go to the next level over the last few years because you know i remember when the arctic race was launched and there was talk of that being the harbinger of something the prelude to something bigger maybe a team maybe a grand depart something along those lines there was talk i remember when i was there at the arctic race there was talk of Husov being involved in a new team i don't know whether there was a salmon company involved something along those lines and um and as you say the, the, some of that has fallen away certainly in the last few years but i just want to ask you a little bit about the the company and the organization itself i mean they've sort of been a bit of a slow well it's been a slow emergence of this team as a power in continental pro continental division cycling but how much do you know about the company tell us a little bit about it and what have its sort of long-term goals been is this the culmination of a long-term project well, they started out quite uh, quite uh, modestly, you know, sponsoring, uh, by the way, Torhusov's old Norwegian team, uh, sponsoring some local events, and then kind of like gradually just like building step by step and going continental and then pro-continental. And as you as you probably know that, you know, they filed, they, they applied for a World Tour license this year, even though they knew they weren't going to get one. Um, but they're certainly got their eyes set on the World Tour in a couple of years. And if a team falls by the wayside, like next year or in a couple of years, they're well placed to kind of make the step up. So um, uh, ideally, you know, they'd want a bigger talent base to pick riders from, which is, I think is was kind of what uh, led to them kind of opening their borders to becoming a Norwegian Danish team. They have a lot of business interest, you know, X in Norway and Denmark. Having it's kind of like having, the same market for them. Having previously been only Norwegian, because it's a Norwegian company, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they kind of parted with a with a, um, a small Danish team, and they kind of went not fifty fifty, but almost. Um, and they kind of um, looking to, you know, it's difficult because they've lost some of their biggest prospects in Tobias Foss, in Andreas Leknesun, and so on. 
uh, to the bigger teams. Uh, ideally, they want, we would want some of those guys back, actually, like in 2024. Mm. Um, but uh, at the same time, you have a lot of interest in the Holland, Johannes and Twins. You might have to let some of those guys go. We want to bring other guys back. And like the, the big news for them now is that Unix are actively pursuing a, a co-sponsor, a naming sponsor to kind of uh, help um, carry the bill. Uh, they're not in trouble in any way, but they're like long term, they need another sponsor to kind of come along and, and help them out. So um, perhaps a Danish company, I wouldn't be too surprised if that happened. Magnus, <laughs> ahead of the news about the wildcard this week, they, there was quite a lot of talk about them on social media because they unveiled their kit for 2023 and they made quite a big thing of the fact that it was the same kit as last year and they talked about sustainability and you know the need to limit consumption however uno x they they their line of business is automated petrol stations am i right that's right that's right um so they're a lot they're into automated petrol stations and these um how do you say in english these um they're building a lot of um What's it called? Yeah, wash where you wash your car. Car basically. washes. Uh, which yeah, car washes. <laughs> Not a difficult word. Uh, <laughs> which are environmentally friendly and and so on. So uh, so yeah. yeah. Okay, and um, we talked about well, you just mentioned this Danish Norwegian alliance that they have formed. Uh, it sounds like a bit of a marriage of convenience, but um, relations between those two countries. I mean, from the outside, it might seem like a strange a strange thing for two countries with two different languages, although. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the relationship between the two languages and the fact that they are mutually, to a certain extent, mutually intelligible. But um, does does that sort of jar with Norwegians that it's a half Danish team? Talk a bit about that. As I say, marriage of convenience I, I, or inconvenience. I think it was. Um, I think everyone saw that as an inevitability because uh, in, you mentioned Tuti Sob back in the day trying to create a team. Uh, he had some big, big companies uh, lined up, almost, uh, and it kind of fell through. And I think one of the realizations back then was that you can't just have a 100% Norwegian team. You need to have probably a Scandinavian team because the talent base isn't big enough, basically. There's not enough, not enough riders. Um, obviously, Sweden have kind of ceased to exist as a cycling nation. So there's only like Denmark left. Finland isn't very... Um, it's not a much of a bike country. So uh, I don't think anyone here cares, to be honest, that it's like mm-hmm. Danish, Norwegian, though you'd obviously want 100% Norwegian and, would be and aw- even cooler. But And uh, away from cycling, away from cycling, away from sport, I mean, how do the two nations get on generally? You and the, you and the Danes, are you, you know, on, is, is it a, a, a harmonious relationship? Yeah, the only not harmonious really thing in our relationship is the fact that as you mentioned, uh, we we can understand each other, but we really don't. So every so every conversation with a Danish guy is really tough because uh, if you write it down, you can understand what he's saying. But when he's talking, you know, you, you're kind of standing there just guessing. Like every time you're interviewing Brian Holm or uh, Mikael Wallberg, you're kind of like guessing what he's saying. Um, but aside from that frustration, uh, I would say that. Um, Norway and Denmark are always compared to each other in politics, in uh, in um, how we run our countries, uh, basically. So it's always been a mutual uh, respect, mutual um, um, sort of uh, 
acknowledgement that you know i think both countries are doing on some level yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, I would say i would say so so um I, no hard feelings uh, okay. i would say okay. uh, and man so lastly let's talk about the tour de france a little bit of course there's a tour, tour de fam a uh, tour de france uh, fam as well which you know x will take part in in 2023 as well but let's focus on the men and just looking at the roster i mean you mentioned the johannesson twins um it was tobias wasn't it who had some good results very good results in france particularly at the start of 2022 caused quite a lot of excitement he was seventh overall in catalonia as well 10th in the dauphine so they got him he's a sort of punchy um arden classics type of rider they got rasmus tiller who was once was well, still is a a pretty adept classics rider. And of course, they've got their big marquee signing, Alexander Kristoff, who at 35 years of age, they've given a three-year contract, but he's not, he's certainly not over the hill yet. He won Skelder Price last year, 2022. So two things I want to ask you, how competitive are they going to be? What do you expect from them? And also, are we going to see an invasion of Norwegian fans to the Tour de France because they have got a team starting in Bilbao next year? Yes, we are. <laughs> I think uh, like uh, already last night, you saw a lot of people on social media, on different sites going on about trying to book uh, hotels in Bilbao. Um, where, where should we stay with our camper in the Alps and whatever? So uh, yeah, there is going to be a lot of people, like, probably like back in the heydays of Edvard Borsenhagen and Christoph and Husot. So uh, that should be good fun. Um, Realistically, they're not going with any sort of GC ambitions. You mentioned uh, Tobias Hallen-Johannesson, but he, uh, like personally, I, I think he'll develop more into a sort of Ala Philippe mm. sort of rider, more than a GC rider. So I mean, it'll be all about Chris. So the Norwegians, historically, they've not really been associated with GC. In fact, the best GC nah. finish ever by a Norwegian was uh, Jostein, was it? Vilman in 1980, finished 14th. You know your history. That's true. You Wikipedia um, knows its history. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Tobias would probably go. You mentioned Christoph would be the uh, the big go-to guy. He's the the main uh, source of um, his. Yeah, he'd be one to get the stage win if they do get one. Uh, Tiller will go. Scorchet uh, probably under twenty-three world champion. Uh, Søren Varnshol will go. Perhaps Tushan um, Trean, a decent climber, uh, and perhaps the talented Danish climber Anton Charmig um, we'll see but um, should be a lot of young riders uh, Tobias Holland-Honnesen for the medium mountain stages and Christoph for the um, chapter-ish stages so um, a stage win should be their goal and yeah it's not it's not unrealistic well, Magnus, I certainly look forward to it. I look forward to seeing you at the Tour de France, as I always do, my colleagues at Norwegian <laughs> TV too. And I look forward to seeing what state of excitement my good friend Dag Otto Laritz, and of course, the first Norwegian stage winner at the Tour de France in 1987. <laughs> I look forward to seeing how excited Dag is um, to see his country <sighs> at the Tour de France. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Euros. Well, Rob, that concludes the news round of the first 
think it's the first news roundup. Yeah, we did we did an episode last week, but that was before the new year. So the first news roundup of 2023. And now it's on with the main event of this first episode of 2023. I said it was going to be mainly focusing on a team that I think is certainly an outside bet for team of the year in 2023. And that is Bora Hansgrohe. The German team. Now, before we talk about their 2023 and introduce Rob Aldag, let's just look back at their 2022. We know they had a bit of a pivot, Rob, didn't we? Uh, the Or don't we? At the start of 2022, they unveiled Rolf Aldag as their new head sports director. And they also announced that they, was, they were changing focus a little bit. They'd signed Alexander Vlasov and they were, they were going to target or devote more resources to Grand Tours and to trying to win Grand Tours. Um, Another new signing at the start of last year was Jai Hindley. Well, Jai Hindley went on to win the Giro d'Italia. That was one of 30 wins for them in 2022. Uh, Sergio Higuita, he was also a new signing. He won the Volta Catalunya. Vlasov won Tour Romandy, Volta Valenciana. Sam Bennett took a couple of stages at the Vuelta. Leonard Kemner won a Giro stage and came very close to taking the yellow jersey at the Tour de France. And Marco Haller won the, I think it's the Bremer Classic, the, the, the old Hamburg side classics. So Rob, 30 wins in total. Uh, a good season. An excellent season, in fact. I would say, yeah, sensational season, really. Certainly given... Uh, you know, you, you have these teams who build up for years and years and years after announcing that they're going to try and win three-week stage race, and it just does not happen for them. All right, they needed that that big tactical play on the last stage to come off, didn't they? But it did come off rather spectacularly, even though a lot of us thought that probably nothing was going to happen that day until the last 10, 15 minutes. Um, you mentioned the signed Gita as well, but they maybe had one or two sort of transitional years with um, Emmanuel Buchmann who'd been riding really, really well in the Tour de France. But, you know, look at other signings last year as well. Ryan Mullen, top ruler, really, really good time trialist turn ruler. So they've added to the team in every single department. Danny Van Poppler had a brilliant, brilliant year as well and had a little bit of success himself too, you know. Perfect year for a guy who has sort of become a lead-out guy now and did all sorts of jobs for the team last year. And I, I guess we must mention a couple of new sports directors. You mentioned uh, Aldag there as well. Um Bernie Eisel came on board as well, didn't he? But Enrico Gasparotto, he did a fantastic job at the Giro d'Italia. And, you know, by all accounts, very, very focused, very, very methodical. uh, And it came off for him. It did, Rob. And I talked about that new focus on Grand Tours. At the at the heart of the conversation we're about to hear with Rolf Aldog is this question of how do you break the sort of, you penetrate that, that inner sanctum or that top tier now of the super teams, really, with the super budgets um, who are winning Grand Tours. So Ineos, Grenadiers, but probably more, more recently... UAE Team Emirates and Team Yuma Visma. Now, in the last few weeks, notably when I spoke to Richard Plugger, we talked a lot about well how they have really established themselves as the as the the, the leaders in that particular field in Grand Tour. They're the standard. 
um, that everyone is now aiming at. And Bora Hansgrohe, their budget isn't quite the level of those three teams. I, I, I think it probably gets close to Jumbo Visma. We don't have the official figures. But Rob, how do you assess their prospects of making that final step? I mean, we'll hear in a minute that they're quite realistic and they're quite sanguine about whether they even need to get to that level. Um, they're not necessarily expecting to win the Tour de France with Jai Hindley this year or with another rider. However, it's certainly on their radar for the midterm. I think we've seen in recent years, most notably, you can invest 50 million and still not win the Tour de France. Mm. So it, there's no given. I, I think maybe setting that as the only goal is quite unrealistic. Certainly nowadays, there's much more competition. We've got, you know, we have for a long time, didn't we? It was just Team Sky with a big budget team. Now we've got several teams who've got all this money around them and, you know, signing big riders. You know, it's more like the Champions League rather than just La Liga now, isn't it? With one team at the top. Um, And I'm looking down now at at Bora Hansgrohe and they are building for the future as well. It's not just about trying to win the Tour de France this year. Although, you know, you've got the likes of... um, Jai Hindley, who's there in the Tour de France, is very much a climbers race, isn't it? Next year, not much time trial. They might have another good go at the Giro d'Italia again with Vlasov, who can certainly time trial. But then you've got people like Bob Jungles joining the team this year, who I'm not sure if he has unfinished business in terms of general classification. I think that's a question you probably have to put to him and his, his new coaches. But just looking a bit further down the line, I'm going to throw a name out there. Kion Erdebrooks. Winner of the Tour de l'Avenir last year, 19 years of age, and he's going to make a Grand Tour debut in August at the Vuelta España. You've thrown that name out there and you've just embarrassed my pronunciation of it in the interview with Rolf Aldag. I gave it my best shot and I had actually, didn't, I had actually listened to um, how it's correctly pronounced before the interview, but I think I still got it wrong. But yes, we do talk about Uterbrooks in the interview and he's my bet. I mean, I said last week, in fact, in the podcast last week that we had our big predictions pod. I predicted the emergence of another baby phenom um, along the lines of Remco and Pogacar, I think that someone will take their place at that very top table of professional cycling, a 20-year-old or a 21-year-old, and Uterbrooks would be would probably be the safest bet or the, the shrewdest bet mm. um, based on past results, based on his Tour de l'Avenir performance, particularly last year. Rob, without further ado, I think we should get to Rolf Aldag. Let's hear what he's got to say about Bora Hansgrohe in 2023. I should just say that we've got another couple of episodes out at the moment, certainly for friends of the podcast. Napalm Lionel has done a fantastic retrospective look back on the 2012 Tour de France Bradley Wiggins victory in that race. Of course, it was 10 years. Um, last July since Wiggins um, took that first ever British victory in the Tour de France so um, that is in the Friends feed as is all of Chenwi's conversation with not just one Backstead but the whole family and the the Backstead cycling dynasty and so if you're a friend of the podcast and you haven't already listened to those two please do next week I'll be back I think after the official presentation of the Vuelta España route for next year, and we'll be mainly focusing on that in anticipation of the serious business of racing, cranking up, starting up um, in the week thereafter, I believe, in Argentina and a couple of other smaller races starting to sort of mushroom on the calendar before the really, really serious business starts. But Rob, I'm going to thank you and, um, well, wish you a very happy 
Three Kings, Reyes Magos. Gracias, Daniel. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport. Fueled by science. Happy New Year, everyone. It's Lionel here with a date for your diaries. And it's a date that's coming up very soon because Daniel and I are going to be at Pod Live Sport in London's King's Place on Sunday, February the 12th at 4pm. It will be the Cycling Podcast's first live event since before the pandemic, and we were delighted to be asked to take part in such a prestigious event alongside some other amazing sports podcasts. Anyway, Daniel and I will be joined on stage by none other than Dan Martin, former Tour de France, Giro d'Italia and Vuelta a España stage winner, of course, and also a double monument winner, because it's almost 10 years since Dan beat a panda to win Liège-Bastogne-Liège, and I'm sure that will come up in our conversation on the stage in London. Dan rode for Garmin, Etix Quickstep, UAE Team Emirates and Israel Startup Nation in a career that spanned 14 seasons. And in that time, he's had some incredible teammates. We'll ask him what it was like to be in the same lineup as Tom Bonin, Julian Alaphilippe, a very young Tadej Pogacar, Chris Froome and many more. And I'm sure we'll also ask him what it was like being the nephew of a former Tour de France winner when he was growing up with his eyes set on a career in professional cycling. To buy tickets, go to sportspodcastgroup.com and click on Pod Live. We'll put that link in the show notes too. And if you sign up for the 1101 Cappuccino, or if you're already a subscriber to our regular email bulletin, we'll give some more details in the next bulletin, which will go out early next week. To sign up for the 1101 Cappuccino, go to thecyclingpodcast.com. When we're with Dan in London, we'll no doubt look back at 2022 and forwards to the coming classics and grand tours and get Dan's expertise on the cycling scene. And we'll also find out why one of his tour stage wins spelled success for the cycling podcast way back in 2013. Meanwhile, we're putting the finishing touches to our plans for 2023. I'll be back on regular episodes of the cycling podcast in the not too distant future. But for now, back to Daniel. Well, Rolf, good morning. I believe you're in Mallorca, um, the 17th Bundesland, the the island that Germany wanted to buy in the 1980s, or the Bild Zeitung suggested that Germany should buy. That um, it's so beloved to Germans. But um, you've just told me, in fact, that you've moved to Mallorca. But it got me thinking. I mean, any German who's involved in cycling has always spent a lot of time in Mallorca. When was the first time that you went to Mallorca for a training camp and? How much have things changed since then as far as training camps on Mallorca are concerned? Uh, I was really weird because I was pretty much an outsider. I think I only got to Mallorca when I was already like into my fourth year professional or something. Wow. Um, because uh, it was kind of like strange. I First, I never went to a training camp in early years because I used to go to work. Six to the three uh, in a factory. So I was uh, learning mold making, tool making for three and a half years. So there was just simply no time. I would have no time off. And uh, and then um, when I turned pro, my former uh, boss of the of the team, like Mr. Klausmeyer from Team Olympia Dortmund, he um, he owned some property in California. And after I've done my first six days in Dortmund, I was really exhausted and everything. So he got me in contact with Eddie B. Um, who was a friend of him and he picked me up in Los Angeles and he brought me up to Ramona which is close to San Diego which I really really liked and then uh, actually uh, on uh, on my private camps I always moved to California for 10 years 
spent uh, around a month to the Christmas. And, uh, and it was really, really weird when, you know, when you do write for Team Deutsche Telekom and they discuss about the training ride and they say like, okay, you go, you know, Sineo and then we go cup and four, cup from a door and nobody is, uh, you know, assumes that there is a German who has not been on Mallorca. So I was always like left or right, left or right. Yep. We told you, you know, where we go. City, but I had no clue because I didn't do a million kilometers on Mallorca, like you have done. Um, so I had a, you know, late meeting with Mallorca on the bike. Uh, from then on, I did when the, I did go really, really often, I have to say, for the simple reason where I lived within one and a half hours of driving in the car, um, I probably had 20 opportunities a day to fly to Mallorca. So the connection from Germany was super easy. So literally, you could say like, move. it's a really bad weather. Um, I checked the flights here from Dortmund, 25 minutes uh, driving. I jump on the plane, I fly there, and I fly back in the evening. You could do that. Or, you know, like stay there for three days. So the flexibility we had with Mallorca was really, really great. And, uh, yeah, I would probably estimate that, uh, you know, I've done a couple of, uh, you know, uh, tours around the globe just on that island here, which I enjoy, which, uh, you know, you need to know the island a little bit. Uh, you need to know that if it's raining, it's super slippery. Um, you need to take care of that. But then, you know, the flexibility that you have to ride flat, to ride in the, you know, semi-hard climbs, to really do long climbs, it's pretty enjoyable. And uh, so, yeah, it is nice. We've got a lot of listeners, Rolf, that will have cycled in Mallorca or go to Mallorca regularly. Have you got any geheim tips? Have you got any sort of um, insider tips of a great ride to do in Mallorca that people might not know? No, I think everything is known. I think you better be careful if you see the sign Sacanobra uh, because, you know, it's a bad end road. Uh, that's also you know, a nice anecdote there with, uh, with our Danish friends, with Deutsche Telekom. Brian Allen was serious in looking for a way out because he could not assume that anybody's that stupid to ride down 10 kilometer a climb, uh, knowing there's no other way out than taking a bowl or going up again. So he was seriously like thought he seriously thought we we're joking, and there must be a left or right along the coast uh, to get out of that that hole. So I would be careful with that. Like you know, be prepared for whatever you ride down. You have to go up again. Um, but otherwise, you know, while I do prefer the climbs, I think uh, ideally you you try to not hit, you know, the big um, the big amount of cars there when you know you have a lot of rental cars, then going in and out. So you know, maybe try to find the right time. Weekends are always re obviously really really busy, so I would try to avoid the weekends and then the climbs. Um, but yeah, I think there is no real bad place to go. Uh, obviously, passing Palma is uh, is a little bit tricky, but then you should just take your time and not right. Try to match, you know, with 35 average. Take your time and uh, find a find a safe way and enjoy the view on the on the yachts and uh, and you know the nice boats out there. Well, Rolf, you're at your team's December camp at the moment, and it's a time I know, and it certainly was last year when you joined the team of intense work and planning and preparation and. Um, getting things like the bike sorted, but also even, I, I guess, looking at routes, Grand Tour routes. Just how much has that aspect of training camps changed? If you have to, if you look back to your telecom camps, I mean, was it literally a case of riding your bike, getting a massage, going to dinner and not much else? Whereas, as I say, you do use these camps now 
as sort of brainstorming intense planning um sort of almost symposiums um i have to say you know to uh, team deutsche telekom was pretty much a you know modern team in that sense that we um not necessarily had to do all all the recons you know on on maps and gpx files that wasn't existing but in sense of like you know partner relations for example so you know, there was a lot of going stuff going on just like you know having guests on board inviting journalists like you know this these uh, connections that have been uh, established really really early and of course uh, so it wasn't just going and sleep and we had nutrition meetings and stuff like that doing nutrition analytics already then so it was a pretty modern team for that time i would think and that of course because Deutsche telecom is so big and uh, with his partners like adidas like audi there's a lot of requests and things to do uh but yeah that season planning of course was a lot later because yeah you wouldn't have gpx files already you wouldn't know exactly like where to go or what to do um but i already feel a lot of that is done already to be honest um, that you know, once a year is out there, then obviously we have with uh, with Enrico Gasparotto, somebody who knows every every rock there in Italy and every climb there in Italy and every road there in Italy. So already then um, we also know other teams did it. Like you know, some teams already did the record before the snow comes, because that's always tricky with the you know with the Giro. If you want to do the high mountains, you either do it the the next day after the presentation. Or you might be covered in snow. So uh, Bernie Eisel already has done the the you know the climbing TT um, in the week after the presentation. So we always are a step forward, and I feel like we have this this slogan on the T-shirt everywhere, like no off season, and it's actually true. So you know, like we were planning a lot of things for 2023 while we were still racing in 2022. So, you know, the agreement on race programs, stuff like that, already done, laid out to the riders. That's the period where we meet, um, you know, at Bavaria there in Tegernsee and in Edstahl with our partners there. So already then we agreed on the race schedule for the team. So um, so now it is a big focus on cycling. There is some photo shooting. There's some stuff to do. Of course, you know, also like uh, core stability and so on, all the add-ons to just cycling. Um but I think we are like really not like covered up and sidetracked from uh, from you know other events than going training. Since you've mentioned it there, we've already mentioned the Giro. Um, the other day already, well, you were in. I was in a, a conversation with you and Ralph Denk where you talked about your the, the, which riders were going to probably do which Grand Tours. You might as well just now explain to me why the decisions you have taken were taken as re, as regards the captains, Vlasov, Hindley, and why send Hindley, I think he's going to go for the Tour de France, why Vlasov to the Giro and, and the other GC guys as well. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, I always think, like, you know, that there needs to be a stimulus and, you know, like something that's really motivational. And, uh, you know, for Jai, he won the Giro. So, you know, should it be a goal to defend the title? Absolutely. But there's always comes also, with, you know, a big risk to say, you know, even if he turns, if he turns second in the Giro, it would be kind of like, you know, seen as like, yeah, last year he won, now he's second. So, you know, it's hard to win anything there. To defend, he would get a lot of credit for it. Is he able to defend? You know, we think he would be. But what's, uh, you know, what's the next, like, really interesting thing? It's like, well, you know, do the Tour de France, see how far we get there. 
And then he can also do a direct comparison in that sense to say, I've done the Giro very successfully. I've done the tour. So where is the future? You know, what do I really want to focus on? While with Alex, uh, you know, he has done the Giro. He has been fourth there. He has been fifth in the tour. We strongly believe he could be our guy to defend the Giro title, um, you know, to really go out there to try to win. But he's definitely in the position that he will compete for the victory. And, you know, that's going to be really, really uh, important, I think, for his career step, for his personal development. Because if we're honest, he was fifth in the tour, but he was not in the competition for the victory. Fifth in the tour, you know, how did he do it with... uh, with an unbelievable um, amount of suffering, of hanging on, of getting through crashes and illness, but he was never in the position to decide, do I, you know, do I attack Kovacar or Wingergaard now or Garrett Thomas? He just was not there, and you know that does not really develop you as a winner, as a leader. That is just follow as long as you can and live with that result. So if you see in his into his individual results, he was one time six on the stage when he was in a breakaway, and while he was the best against the best, he was eight. And, you know, that does not, like, show, like, okay, you were with the best on the moment when the race is decided. And we strongly believe Alex will be in that situation, in that position, in the Giro. And that makes a difference long-term, because he's also still young, you know, to decide, say, do I really put everything into the next attack? Is that the winning or losing attack in a Grand Tour? And uh, I think that will definitely help him, will help the team. And uh, yeah, that's why we think we should go for it, to saying, okay, you know, try to win the Giro again. And Alex Vlasov um, benefits from that next uh, career step. Rolf, when you joined the team a year ago, you and the team, well, the team made a bit of a pivot towards Grand Tours. And you talked a lot about that at the start of last year. And it was a massive, massive success um, in the sense that Vlasov was fifth in the Tour and Jai, of course, won the Giro. Um, but I guess you saw when Jai won the Giro, what impact that had or didn't have in Germany. You're a German sponsor. How much interest there was or there wasn't. Um, is, is, is that a bit of an issue for your team now that, okay, you can keep winning the Giro, but last year, maybe you also realised that at the moment, Pogacar, Vingegaard are in a bit of a league of their own. So the options open to your team are to try to win the Giro, try to win the Vuelta. And I don't know how much impact that has and whether your sponsors are really satisfied with that. Well, you know, I can only, you know, like um, uh, transport my feeling here and what, what we hear. I do think they are really happy with the, with the direction that the team goes. Would we want to win the tour one day? Of course we would want to. And, you know, that's not secret. Do we build the team that direction? Yes, we do. But I think, you know, we also have to stay humble here. Um, you know, to say, you know, we, we, we are part of the world, professional world of cycling. And if you can win one out of three Grand Tours, you know, and if you see who won the Grand Tour in 2022... I don't really think, you know, like it's uh, it's kind of like, you know, a second tier race if you win the world or if you win the Giro. So, of course, you know, that is something very outstanding. You know, like other teams with probably double the budget that we have did not win a Grand Tour. So I think we should be really proud. And I do think it's really appreciated by our partners, by our sponsors. And what's the real nice thing is like they believe in the concept. So Vinnie Brockbauer, with some cycling background, was racing himself. He does understand 
it takes time and it needs certain steps. So you can always dream about winning the Tour de France and you know going in there with the same with the same experience and with not a learning process from other races, and you will always fail. So I think it is very very important to do these learnings and you know to also gain a lot of self confidence from that because. I do think that we did get a lot more respect in the bunch after winning the Giro. That we are a, a, a factor now in the in the world of Grand Tour victories. That you know we're one of these players, and that will help us long term also for the tour. Will it help us to win the tour 2023? Well, you know, Jai at least knows how to win a Grand Tour. If we would not have have that focus on the Giro. And already throw him in the tour in 2022, he would not come to the tour as a Grand Tour winner. He would not be, you know, like, hey, when he's suffering, when he's at his limit, knowing, looking back to Sigi, but I went through this and I did succeed. So I do think the mental aspect there, the respect from the bunch, that's all like parts that we that we should not forget. But it's also no secret that for sure we would like to win the Tour de France and for sure that's that's our aim. But it's not everything, you know. I think our team, and that's important to understand, I don't think we end in a big vacuum, in a big hole. If we won the Tour, then what? You know, cycling is more about just the Tour de France, you know, and, and, and sometimes you do see, like, you know, in the past, Team Sky was very, very clearly, you know, there was a huge focus on the Tour de France. So what happened now with Team Sky and Neos, it would always be measured against the Tour de France. So even if they have great, you know, races in the classes, they win Roubaix, everybody will look back and say, yeah, but it wasn't a great year that didn't win the Tour de France. And, and we think cycling is just so much more than the Tour de France, and we don't want to go that way to just lock ourselves into the Tour de France. That's a goal, yes, for sure. But one day races remains a goal. You know, all the monuments remains a goal for us. It's so nice to, to win races like Pyrenees, like Catalonia, and, and then I think it's also a question of how you win them. So we never want to lose our style of riding, our aggressive riding, trying to surprise people rather than just having the strongest people and ride, you know, my watts per kilo. To say, okay, you know, our fourth best line, I can do a 5.7, you know, our third best 5.8, our second best 6.2. That means we will bring our leader with two other competitors to the last three kilometers and he could drop them all. That's not our way of racing. That's, you know, that's not how we do it. Uh, we do work scientifically, but we want to keep that excitement around it and around the whole world of cycling, not just the Tour de France. Just thinking about that style of racing, Rolf, um, a few days ago I was talking to Richard Plugger and he was talking about well, how when Sky were dominating the Tour de France and Ineos as well, um, obviously it was the era, what we called the era of marginal gains. And he said that Jumbo Visma became a bit too obsessed with that in those years, sort of 2015, 16, 17, and they forgot about the basics. But he also said that maybe the, the current phase, the phase that we're entering is a phase of tactical evolution, that maybe we might start to see some quite different tactical ideas and concepts. And, you know, they've got this idea of, well, he called it total cycling, but it's certainly a very aggressive style of racing. I mean, we saw particularly with the way Jai won the Giro. It wasn't, okay, it wasn't the most aggressive Giro throughout the race, but there were days, and particularly that stage, where you did something quite 
interesting and very successful. Do you think that we, we're going to see a lot of new tactical sort of concepts, ideas in the next couple of years, and maybe that that is the phase that we're entering in cycling? Yeah, there's certainly like a shift. I mean, what where you see it the most, in my opinion, was like that teams could not take too much risk anymore and not to invest anymore too much to make it a strength, let's say. You know, if you see how many times, like in, uh, you know, in, in the last two years in the Tour de France sprint stages did not turn out to be a sprint stage uh, because even sprinter teams would judge on like, hmm, we can try to control it the whole day, but there's still no guarantee we win it. I would just partici participate aggressively in the race and put something in the breakaway and we also compete for the victory. I think there you already seen like a shift. That's very clear because today in all the pure analytics in the 2021 tour, there were more sprints on paper than actually happened. Um, one was the one that Matteo Moric won like where you thought like, you know, 100% that's going to be a, a sprint. But they kept on attacking like crazy, crazy that, you know, everybody you know, like make that switch and they had to say, we just can't bring it back. It's just too many, go too much going on. So we rather shift our uh, interest also into ag aggressive riding and attacking. And I do think, um, yeah, that's, uh, you know, that's the way it goes. Now, thinking that forward on, on GC, on, you know, like stage wins in the mountains, I also think that you have more riders in the position being capable of winning. So why would you limit them? You know, why would you limit them in terms of like, yeah, you just stay with the captain and, you know, you protect him and you ride on, you know, in front of him. Why would you not say, okay, we're not going to hurt ourselves if you ride aggressively. Uh, we still have a chance to win. We still keep the motivation really high, the team spirit really high. Because, I mean, like, how do you motivate people? And it's, it's you know, different ways to do it. And it's also like, what do they expect from you? So you can either say, like, you know what? We want you to stay with your captain all the way. But we pay you already like you would win that race anyway. I think that was the old title, you know, a sky strategy. A lot of riders never lived up to their full potential in terms of results. But they have been paid like they won the Tour, they won the Giro, they won the Classic, they won whatever. Fair play. You know, if you take that to say, you know what, that gives me a lot of, you know, personal security for the rest of my life, for me, my family, my kids. If you accept it that way, that's great. But I do see that young generation now that coming through, they're not dr that much driven by money. They are driven by success. So if you do the same thing now, I do think you kind of like kill their motivation to ride six hours in the rain. I do think you have to offer something to them. And what do you offer? You offer opportunities. And if you offer opportunities to change the way of racing, because you're not going in with a one captain strategy, you leave it more open. You say, you know what? It's not going to hurt your captain. If you go into the breakaway, you know, that's also what we've done in the Giro. Because if you look at last year, you know, Lenny Kemner still won that stage. You know, that, that first mountain top finish on that now. Did we, you know, we went in there with Emil Buchmann, with Jai and with Wilco, with three leaders to say, you know what, we're not going to hurt each other. But we're also not going to lock ourselves into one rider and something goes wrong and we all like regret it. So it is a much more open way of racing and it's also harder to control for other teams because, yeah, what do you do if Vilko Kellerman's in the breakaway and that breakaway is on eight minutes? Then you're forced to do something about it because you don't want to have him taking a jersey with six minutes lead. 
Um, how, why is that possible? Because I think, you know, the lever on the te- in the teams within the good climbers, within the good GC riders becomes much closer and that gives you the possibility and the opportunity. Because if, you know, if you have a guy who said, hmm, no matter what, on the next mountain stage, you will lose 20 minutes anyway. It's, you know, you don't put pressure on another team, but you do put pressure on another team if you have three guys who can always potentially, you know, keep the jersey for a long time or even might win a GC. It's interesting what you say, Rolf, about riders apparently being more motivated by success than money now. I guess that's partly a reflection on the way cycling's changed and the kind of people that cycling is attracting now. Typically, they're... You know, the 20-year-olds, the 21-year-olds that come into the team are educated. They're from relatively, I won't say wealthy families, but kind of middle-class families. Is that, would you say that those are factors that contribute to that slight change in mentality? And maybe it's a societal change as well, that there are more people of that age who are motivated by self-fulfillment in other ways besides money. I mean, you've got a, you've got a daughter, an older daughter, maybe you see it in her and her peer group, I don't know. Yeah, could be. I, I think it's also that, you know, people are not kind of like um, kept short from, you know, from young age. So I do think, you know, we, we, we educate kids different. I think we do give people more responsibility in earlier age and we don't limit them because, you know, that's the other factor. Like, you know, maybe the past was also just like even 19 year old ever turned pro, which was very rare. What would he do? He would be a domestic. He would have to write for somebody else. And my perfect example is all, always like, you know, when Emko Evenepoel first time won San Sebastian, that would not have happened 10 years earlier because he would have had to stay with Philip Gilbert because he's an old senior rider and can win the race that he put everything behind him. So, you know, you would never ever let him ride away and win that race. So that also means like, you're not like you know, then they have not been handled down for three years in their first three years as a pro career. So right when they turn pro, it's about like, mate, if you perform, you got your chance. If you don't perform, of course, you know you need to help. You need to do this. You need to build up. You you, you do get the time to get better. Um, but the, the the real big change in uh, is giving opportunities, and I think that keeps them motivated and that makes them realizing like. I can win something because if you're three years, you're not giving that chance to prove yourself for the best possible own result. I think you also lose it. And then maybe you choose for like, you know what? I don't know what I can still still do. I'm not very self-confident. I pick, I choose the money because everything else is risky. So if they offer me that money, do I take that risk of trying to see how far I get? Or do I take the, you know, the safe, the safe way and take the money. I think now in that I I would think every neo pro, wherever he goes, gets a few chances every year to prove himself. And that is not the tradition in cycling. That is definitely not what has happened in, in the past. Does that cause any problems in the sense that, I mean, do you find that sometimes there are maybe older guys who would like the hierarchy in the old sense to be respected a bit more that they don't they don't really like the idea of neo pros getting opportunities do you see that i would find that pretty natural because you know if you defend the place where you are and i do think it's up to management then and sport directors and coaches to make sure that you have the right environment to grow young people because at the end of the day it's on our future 
And even the older guys have to understand say, if that team is not successful, if that team does not develop, then, um, you know, we don't know well. Uh, if people don't understand it, well, then I think you have to make them understand or ignore their, you know, opinion and still move on in life with that concept because, I mean, that's the only way forward. But I agree with you. It's like sometimes not easy. And if I do think back in my on my own career, you know, and you think, hmm, you know what, I'm now in my 10th year, but I want to do another five years, you do stay near professionals as a competitor. I think that's pretty natural because, you know, it, it will be about your next contract. And if he can replace you, then you see him as a teammate, as a nice guy, but also as a competitor for your own next contract. And they are, in fact, like we can not ignore that. And we do take that serious, but we can also not stick to that one generation because that means like after one generation, the team should close though. Is one key reason though why those young riders are given opportunities now that they have the empirical evidence that, that they can, everyone can see there, the coaches can see their training files and even if the older guy is saying, I should still be the captain, then the coach can go to him and say, well, look, you know, this guy's peak power, this guy, is, this guy has this ability, yours is lower, so therefore it's an easy decision. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, there's a lot of stuff numbers driven then and evidence comes by the numbers. And uh, of course, you know, you can show a lot of stuff. You cannot show experience in numbers. You cannot take away formal success by now existing numbers so if somebody already won a race three times there's evidence you can win this race um but uh, but in the id like you know like you do compare and uh, and like you know the way we handle things is like the sport director has an idea for that race but he does obviously um you know like get in touch with the coaches say well i do see this in this role for this in this rider do you agree and can you confirm that this is within his ability and, uh, you know, and, and that is kind of like the way things go. We're just saying, no, absolutely. Yeah, I know he's 20 years old. And up to you to, to think about, like, can he tactically, uh, is he tactically, you know, capable of winning that race? That's less of the coaching thing. That's, you know, that's, uh, that's more the sport director area. But if you think, like, that race is, is you know, technically not super difficult and the main thing will be the numbers that he can produce to win that race, well, then, you know, give him that opportunity. How we play that tactically, tactically is another question because it's also that young, more unknown riders will have more freedom within the race because they're not seen as a favorite. You know, we can also play that role to that, that way to say, of course, you know, whenever the winner from last year goes to attack, the whole bunch, if they can, will be on his wheel. Number one will always be covered. And uh, if you have a young rider, you can play it really nice because you can confuse people. And, uh, you know, if he rides away, well, probably nobody's shocked, nobody's super afraid of it, so let him ride. They don't catch him back, you win. They catch him back, you still have the, you know, the older guy, the leader with all his experience being fresh on the wheels, you can still win. So, you know, to me, it's still a win-win situation. Then also the older guy should not be afraid of should see it as an add-on to make, you know, to bring the quality up in the team. I mean, the, the amount of information available, Rolf, it brings mainly advantages. It's the quality of the feedback that you guys get is so much higher now. But I was reading an interview with um, Beppe Martinelli, the veteran Astana director, a couple of days ago. And he said, sometimes it's frustrating now as a director sportif because you have an idea, for example, in a grand tour of what you want to do with the team the next day. 
And before you even suggested it to the riders, you've spoken to the coach or you've got some piece of information, I don't know, the rider's sleep data and so on and so forth. And that information has already um, almost sort of debunked and ruined the plan before you've even had a chance to even suggest the idea to the riders. Um, So it's very, very difficult now sometimes to plan in advance in that way particularly in grand tours you have to almost wait until the next morning and consult all the experts and it takes away some of your autonomy as a direct sportif do you find that um no i think it's just a it, it's a massive benefit because you know i mean like because if that plant is kind of like already killed before it's communicated why is it because then it's probably unrealistic I mean, you can all dream about scenarios that here we go and there we go and then we attack and we're going to drop everybody. But if the numbers tell you like nobody will be capable of doing that, well, you can still chase a dream, but it will not work. So I'd rather have an informed decision. Say, you know, so then would be be an idea. My idea, yes, no, maybe. And maybe might still be worth to try. But if it's like, no, it's not going to work. Why should I try then? So, you know, some things are set up to fail. Even if they're not great, even if you think like, you know, like well, back in uh, 90, uh, 1998 with Patani, it would have worked, but that's not, you know, modern cycling anymore. Because surprising people is pretty difficult. Um, you can do it on the technical course like we did in Torino, but even then you have to be able to match the numbers. You know, just to surprise somebody, then it's chaos for five minutes, but then it's back to the old starters because your competitors will be able to fix a situation. So you have to come to something that is, you know, not fixable anymore to be successful for your competitors. And and therefore, I'm pretty happy with modern coaching, with the information that we do have. And, um, and you know, I also like the support of race radios. And, uh, you know, sometimes to watch a race that gets completely out of control is nice. Uh, but for sure, I mean, you know, we, we have also partners that invest millions and millions of euros who just can't leave it up to, you know, being, you know, living in our dreams from 25 years ago. I don't really think that would be fair to any of our partners and consistently fail uh, if we could have done better. So if you try to get the maximum out, I believe the best you can do is like collect all the expert information that you do have and then, you know, make the best decision. Just one more thing on this theme of information. Um, Sometimes people in cycling now talk about the information overload and the burden that this puts on riders. I mean, the other day when we were talking with Ralph Denk, one of the German, one of my German colleagues asked a question about Leonard Kemner and um, Leonard Kemner is someone who two or three years ago, didn't he, took a period out of cycling to sort of find himself a little bit. And it is a bit of a concern that it all becomes very burdensome. The physical load and the fact that these riders now, they're on altitude camps for long, long periods. They can't really switch off. They they are, they have to be answerable to the team and the coach all the time. The team can see absolutely everything they're doing in terms of their training files. Um, is this something that you worry about, the, the burdens on riders? And, um, and how do you personally think of how to manage that burden? Yeah, no, I do agree. And it's also, you know, what we do ask ourselves is like, how long will future careers be, um, you know, with that, you know, with that intensity that they have to live through? Because that's clear that it's a different intensity. So can you have a, you know, 18-year uh, career 
uh, 15-year career, or will it be because you come in early, you're super young, and somehow that you know whole amount of energy that you can spend to recycling will be just used up earlier. We all don't know. Uh, the problem here is like there is no real alternative. Um, so, and uh, the only thing I I think is important to um, to make clear here is like it's not to control them. It's to help them, you know, it's, it's to help them to say, well, you know, we give you the tools to get the best out of your career. If it becomes a burden in that sense, they're, oh, yeah, you know what? They see my, that I only started training at 11.30 and someone would call me and say a professional has to start at nine. You know, if they, if they are scared, if they have fear, if they have fear of this kind of controlling mechanism, that would be really negative and would really be bad. So I think, you know, you have to make sure that your team rider do the riders do understand that um, let's get together here. Let's get as much support as you can handle, as you want to have, as we can give you um, to look back after your career to say, you know what, we tried everything. We achieved everything we could have achieved and there's nothing to regret afterwards. So this kind of like um, no regret approach, I think it's, it's very, very nice. But you also have riders where you where you know they probably could do better, but they decided for a different lifestyle. For example, you know you do have riders who tell you like in the in the um, planning meetings for the for the race calendar, say, you know what I really like to travel. Can I do at least two overseas races every season? You know, and I would do respect that because I also believe like telling him like no, you can't. Because we need to hear here and here, we need to indulge, we need to in, in, in whatever these races will not motivate him. So to get the best out of people, you have to respect their point of view. You have to respect, you know, their approach as well. And I do think that's still doable. And I do think all the stuff that they do is to help them. And I do believe that there's not a lot of alternatives. If you just go and freestyle now and say, you know what, I don't care about a training plan, I just go out riding. Um, yeah. I think even if you're the most talented riders, rider, you will probably be still successful, um, but you will not get the best of the, out of your career. And if you were just a, you know, a very good rider, but not their best, it's going to be very difficult to uh, to stay long term in world tour. It looked as though you got the balance right with Lenny in particular last year. I mean, he, he had a very good year. He was great at the Giro and almost took the yellow jersey at the Tour. Um, but it's obviously with him, I got the sense, listening to you and Ralph the other day, it's something you're thinking about a lot. That the You're very conscious of managing his sort of, the burdens on him. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, we, we look back and say, yeah, he had a great year, won a stage in the Giro and... Uh... Um, but you know, for me, like I, for him, I really felt personally sorry with the tour, and you do see that workload of the tour, and you do ask yourself, like, well, was that combination the right combination? Because you know, like for me, it's like um, being far off is one thing; being so close but still not succeeding hurts sometimes even more. And then you look back to say, well, if it would have been fresh. You know, on on these races, would he, you know, stay away on uh, Blanche de Belfi? You know, the three seconds that he needed extra to win that stage, would he be in the yellow jersey? So we didn't manage to give him, you know, to get him into yellow and to give him that stage win. 
And I personally feel really sorry for, for Nana there because, you know, he really, really deserves it. But you also see how massive workloads you do get out of this grant tools from that geo. And then even if he rested properly from there to there, then not making it to Paris, Lennart is definitely not, not somebody say, you know what, ah, it's no fun anymore, I go home. So, you know, like he was absolutely at his limits and we do have to respect that. And we also, if you see like what he has done afterwards, was, you know, was also part of the, or was a consequence of Jira and Tour combination. And I think it's Lennart, or it might be somebody else, Adiotti or maybe a young, you know, talented rider. We have to be very careful with with you know where we put them in, and we have to manage expectation there. And uh, and with Lenny, yeah, it was a great asset. And you know every race you have Lenny as a sport director, it's very helpful because he speaks up, he's very authentic, he races the way he, we want to race, aggressive, you know, like always forward, always trying everything. But of course, you know, we could, we we have to be careful. And and yeah, with Lenny and uh, you know his time off was absolutely the right decision to give him that time because I think if you keep on forcing people uh, then it comes to a point of no return then you know there will be an exit there will be a different you know new start in life somewhere somewhere else but we don't want to lose Lenny like we do not want to lose anybody else from our team and therefore I think we have to be very very careful with how we handle them and what we can you know where we can take away this bird. Yeah, because you see guys like, you know, Marcel Kittel and Tom Dumoulin, and, and I think in both cases, they're happy with the decisions they made. And certainly Marcel seems to have made a, a great decision for him. But as fans and probably as as directors who once worked with those guys, there is a tendency to think, well, maybe, maybe if we'd given them a bit more rest, taking the pressure off a little bit, uh, then they could have had slightly longer. Yeah, that's true. I mean, for sure, you think that way. But then if you look back and say, true. You know what? But they're happy now. I think, you know, especially with Tom Demona there, you think, like, okay, what else could he have done? I mean, him and Marcel, they're both luckily in the position that they don't go back to, like, well, we are not educated. We didn't make money and we, we suffer through our lives now and, like, you know, try to find a dry, warm place under a bridge in London. So, you know, that I think is a good side about it that. They did go through a, a period of a lot of stress and pressure, they, but they luckily have been so successful that now they can afford a lifestyle that they're not depending on jobs on you know on income because they will make their living and by their name by what they already made by hopefully you know and I think both are clever enough to not waste their money only on Ferraris and you know luxury goods. So you know I'm, I'm pretty happy for them because the worst is. To say, well, you know, they feel like they go out of the sport completely exhausted, like mentally exhausted. And then they face real life, which I think is not necessarily a lot easier. I think if you talk to normal people now and they get that electricity built and, you know, their bills for eating for gas. You know, I think there's a lot of burden in normal life that sometimes we forget because most of the time we're on the sunny side of, of the world. And not just weather wise, but, you know, financial wise. Um, the way people are supported, you know, the benefits that we get from being in professional sports. So I think that would be the worst scenario if you think like, you know, they're suffering here already and they decide to stop and then they're suffering even more normal life, you know. And so, you know, that's nothing that you wish for. And I think with Marcel and Tom, um, 
I think we're all pretty happy that that they you know that at least they move on, but at least they didn't completely disappear from the scene. So Marcel works with you know at some races with media. Tom Dumoulin is still around. Tom is definitely Tom Dumoulin is definitely not spending his money on Ferraris. The last I heard, he was staying in youth hostels in Nepal. So no no worries on that score. Um, Rolf, I just want to sort of finish really just asking you well uh, just ask you first about the recruitment this year for Bora I mean not that much change not that much turnover um, consolidation rather than revolution four riders coming in Jungels, Dents, Lipovitz and uh, Koretsky the last one from B&B three four riders left um, Felix Grosschartner is a guy who probably didn't get enough attention when he was at Bora a really solid rider but often was sort of in the shadow of others. Perstelberger, Kelderman and Lass have left. What was the general idea of what you wanted and needed to do with the recruitment this year? Well, you know, I think I think it was many times expressed that, uh, you know, um, that they're all good riders that left us. And I think, you know, some looked for opportunities and I think, you know, we can live for that um, because, you know, if they feel like, okay, we, we want to make a next step or we want to kind of like show ourselves and it just does not match and does not fit into into the borough structure. Then I think the best way is to you know to stay friends and to move on in life and wish each other all the best. And for sure, you know, like I think I've said, and I also feel that that especially um, you know Virgo gives a lot to the team. You know, not discrediting um, like Phoenix or Pesti or something, but Virgo is really a guy that is well his lifestyle, his way of approaching things, his training and how he is integrated into the team, how he, you know, brings new things to management, how he asks for, you know, for upgrades in the team. That's pretty unique. And uh, and that's something really, really special that you do get with Virgo. So, of course, you know, that's like um, a loss. The others are a loss as well on the personal level. Um, but Virgo, um, yeah, it is what it is. But, you know, we cannot, we also can't force anybody to stay if they, if they try to move on. Now, why I'm not so like negative about these things is that I believe like within the team, there's a lot of riders with more potential that we've seen, always, you know, just bad years now. And I also think like if a vehicle is gone, that gives one extra spot at two grand to us, you know, because if vehicle says, I want to do the Giro and the, the Vuelta, vehicle is doing the Giro and the Vuelta. So... If Vilko's not there anymore, we have to offer something. We have to offer something to the riders who have the talent, who couldn't show it, either because they had a bad year or because we were locked into the situation, you know, certain riders are given for certain races. And uh, and that makes me pretty optimistic that we, you know, we, we can kickstart them again. You know, just, just look through our roles to say, you know, Mark Schaffman had everything else but a great year. You know, like, so, you know, where do we pull it? If we keep with, you know, keep going with the same people and we have nobody leaving. So rather than now hiring on top, uh, we went that way to say, you know, develop our own people. Because we live into the potential. If you just take external riders and hire on top, hire on top, hire on top, that also shows a little bit of distrust and mistrust in your own riders. And that has to be clear to say, you know what? You have this opportunity in 2023. And we all have to work hard to, to, you know, to get results out of these opportunities. And that's the way we want to go. And that's why actually nobody is really stressed to say, mm, yeah, but look at the UCI points. And on paper, we are a weaker team. And like we lost, uh, we lost so much horsepower. We do believe there's 
there is a next step. You know, Patrick Conrad, he was seventh in the Giro. He won a tour, uh, tour stage in, in, in uh, 21. So can he do more than he showed in 22? Of course he can. And he knows that. And he wants to prove himself. But, you know, if we remain like with riders kind of like on top of him, then he will never get that chance. So give him that chance. Make sure that he understands that this is his own personal um, opportunity and, you know, possibilities out there. Then he will grow as a person. He will grow as a rider. They will re regain like leadership like Max will do. And, uh, and hopefully, you know, at the end of the season, we all look back and say, look, you know, it actually wasn't losses. It was a different way of doing things. It was different opportunities and people step, stepped up. Finally, I will just ask you about a few more individuals who maybe had difficulties last year and you'll probably, you know, have big plans for this year. And Matthew Walls, the British rider, had a fantastic debut season and then he had a terrible crash on the track and he had a pretty miserable season after that. Um, where's he at and what do you expect from him? Yeah, the same thing. I mean, he's so young, we still believe in his talent and... If you really look into his medical report, it was not just that spectacular crash that he did flying to the spectator rules there. Um, he, I think he, he first I crashed really super hard into a Valencia already and just kept on going ill and crash and ill and crash and ill and crash. So what does that mean? That means like it ends in a, you know, in a year with zero results, but not with lost talent. So now, you know, the point is for him to say, well, when is the right moment to gain back um, self-confidence? Because as we all know, you know, sprinters live from their confidence to say, I know I can win. I know I can do this. So we have to be careful with this race program to say, we're not overload him. Uh, we're kind of like, yeah, you have to do that just for gaps. We have clearly, uh, we need to point out like races where we say, well, we believe in you. We know you can win. And these are the races is uh, you know that uh, that you can win. Um, so he's a little bit back to like you know where he started as a nail pro to say you know careful build up because that especially that crash on the track really took a long time that we got over it. You know was you don't want to go too early or back racing with a head injury that's for sure. You know and uh, so we are responsible for for the health of our riders and the future lives and that's why we took it very conservative now he needs to train uh you know and just brings up it's so a where is he plan is he plan in the lead or train for sam at uae where you have a million other sprinters no not really we do give them the opportunity in oman uh and we rather you know want to see how he goes in oman and you know try to get him into you know into close to the line to try to win then you know to making one out of 30 guys competing somewhere somewhere um, at the UAE race let's say world championship yeah. for sprinters okay another young rider um, Sian Uterbrooks won the Tour de l'Avenir your Belgian prodigy he was good also in the well the senior races he did Norway Sibiu Tour um, what's his what does his program look like for this year and what do you expect um you know, same thing. So, you know, just a little bit just to understand like how we how we work. So, you know, we, we develop the race program for the whole team. We do send that out to the responsible coach, to the rider and to the responsible DS. They do like a mini working group. They talk to each other and develop their dream program. So now Kian's program was a little bit kind of like, well, Valencia, Algarve, blah, blah, blah. And then we came back and said, well, that's nice. But, you know, Valencia, Alex Vlasov won. And it's not going to be a secret. He's going to be there again. And, he will, you know, ideally we win again. 
So your role would be much more a helping role. Now, is that really what we want to do with you? Um, you know, probably not. So why wouldn't we then pick races where say, you know, these are races that you can clearly get your own chance. You go, you know, you go for your own result with team support. And, uh, and then next step would be like, um, five races like to Switzerland. That's the next step to say, are you going there as a sole captain? Probably not. But do you learn a lot? Probably yes. Are we still, you know, able to give you chances for certain stages? Yes, we can. And then if everything goes very smooth, uh, you know, he would be a candidate for the two of Spain for the World Cup. So just very careful on goals at the beginning and kind of like, you know, a growing period in the mix of the season and kind of like, you know, end, end the season with a grand tour if everything goes smooth. And uh, why the Vuelta? Because, you know, the Vuelta at the end of the day, you can draw a line and say, you know what, it was so hard, it was so demanding. Um, you know, this is it, 2023 is over, you recover, you rebuild, and you don't have to kind of like make a second attempt like you would do if you send a young guy to the Giro. Okay. Um, last two riders, um, Higita had a really outstanding season, um, you know, won, in, won a stage in Romandy, won Catalonia overall, fifth in Liège, fourth in Lombardy, second in Swiss. Is it more of the same for him or what, what does his sort of projected development curve look like in your eyes? Yeah, um, for sure, and he'll get very stable in his performance. I think that's, you know, that's what we want to see. Um, like, it wasn't like going everything as planned with the, with the, with the Vuelta. You know, it was an idea to see how far we get in GC. He was hanging on probably from our side. I do think, we, you know, we made the decision a bit too late to say, well, you know what, give up that idea and go for stages. Um, to get something really good out of it. So I think, you know, from now I would say like, well, he was hanging on for too long when it was kind of like, you know... Where was he, Rolf, on GC roughly when you made that decision? I was somewhere around 12s or 15s or something where you always hope like, yeah, if you get into a breakaway, you know, you can regain time. But as we all know, it's not really relevant. If you're not, you know, if you're not top 10 and did with, with kind of like a positive trend, then it, it does not become really interesting for a guy like him. Because at the end of the day, what is Sergio about? He's about, you know, entertaining and winning. He's not the guy that you expect to, you know, to just hang on and, you know, just be kind of the guy who's just still somewhere on, on camera in the background, being dropped, coming back, being dropped, coming back. And then that uh, kind of like confirms his GC with a, with a great TT. That's not Sergio, you know, it's like, like being really you know, emotional and jumping, entertaining. And so what you don't want to do is just like, force him into, into kind of like a, a box that he doesn't belong to. And that's what be kind of like this hang on for ninth place in GC. And last one I was curious about, Rolf, um, Tony Palza, who we've, we've sort of followed with great interest, his story. Um, he rode the Vuelta two years ago. That was his first Grand Tour. He didn't ride any Grand Tours last year. On paper... His season looked kind, quite similar to his first season, 2021. This is a guy, of course, who's come from ski, mountaineering, also sky running. Um, this is part of your your team's sort of multidisciplinary experiment. Um, where's he at? Well, I think you know, like on on paid by you would probably really think like like where was where was the step up for him from first season to second season? I think where the step up is now and the the way forward is like. 
he, uh, you can integrate him as a DS now into your strategy. While in the first year, you know, you're probably just busy with, with educating him to say, well, you take a bottle on the right side of the road, by the way, not on the left side. Um, so, you know, it was a one-man project. It was a Pony Pulsar project. It's like, this is Tony, and we have to look after him. Now, Tony is part of the team. So he, in 2022, he became part of the team to say, you know what, Tony? We need you at that time to ride tempo. We need you to control the race. Like in Catalonia, they said, like, not where he's really an expert in, but on the last stage, we said you had the jersey. He was a critical guy in headwind to control the breakaway. So, you know, he is now, the next step is like he was useful for the team. So first thing is like just learn how to shift, how to grab a bottle, how to ride your bike. Now it's like, you know, be useful to be a teammate, to be part of the strategy of the team. And the third step, and we really hope to get there to 2023, is like, well, you know, to try to score some results and make that next step to be not in our strategy, but in the overall race um, development, kind of like, um, you know, play a role there and, and, and take a position there. And ideally, you know, I was like it if the somewhere in life you you know you're close to win something. Because look back, you know, he was a very successful athlete. Not cyclist, but athlete. There's just no way that he can ever be happy with like, I oh, yeah, now I'd one of hundred and eighty guys sitting at the bunch. So we have to come to the point with him to make him a successful athlete. It is a successful story till now to learn how to ride your bike, to do a grand tour, to be integrated in the team, to be a respected team member that the other six riding with you in the same jersey trust you can do a job, trust that Tony will be there if it's from kilometer 90 to 110 uphill, he will be there and will pace us, he will position us, he's doing the job and he can bring us bottles. So that's the next step, but that's all nice, but that's not where Tony Palzer comes from. Tony Palzer comes from the winning stuff, uh, taking high risk on like I mean this mountain thing there is like crazy if you look at it you know um, risk taking fitness levels and you know mental strengths so the next step has to be for him to say at least be in a position to try to compete for you know for great results possibly victories well Rolf I think that's just about it it's um, a few days till Christmas the hot news the big news in professional cycling today is that Mark Cavendish might be signing for Astana, your old protege. Um, I'm not going to press you on that. You probably know. You probably know exactly what's going on. But if, if he did sign for Astana, how's he going to do? Uh, I think, you know, he's still there. The talent is not gone. So if he works hard, I'm not sure how he will do it because, you know, nobody really knows with Mark. But I know that he has the possibilities to do good. And what is this all about? You know, I mean, we had rumors about other teams saying, hmm, this is just to ride your bike then, because it's hard to imagine you would get an invitation for the Tour de So to me now, you know, his whole drive is to break that record and to show people, you know, and he was always good in showing people that they made a mistake. So I'm pretty sure, you know, he wants to prove people now that they made a mistake to leave him out of the Tour de France. And, uh, you know, and he wants to prove them wrong and he wants to, uh, you know, get that record. And then I'm not sure, you know, as a list of people in his next book <laughs> I always knew I could do it you just didn't believe in me and uh, and if that is his drive then I do think especially with the 2023 Tour de France with potentially up to 8 sprints maybe it's going to be 6 um, he's technically so good if he can really get his things together 
he will be in the competition for some victories there. Is he going to win? I don't know. You know, there's a lot of great sprinters out there. Uh, but he's 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 a planner guy, and he's driven, you know, by this by his ego. He's driven by this record, and he's driven by you know proving people wrong. And uh, and so I do think like um, you know it's got to be interesting. Rolf, you've just made sure that you're not going to be that person who he's sticking his finger up to in the next book. So well done on that. <laughs> well, Rolf, um, I'm going to thank you very much for your time, and I'm going to wish you a very merry Christmas. And I'm sure I'll see you on the road in 2020. Yeah, same to you. Thank you. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed, and Lionel Burney.